The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm welcome to this Friday edition of Scorebox with Jeff and Karen in London and myself, Steve Sedgwick here, Carbis Bay, Cornwall, the G7. These are your headlines. So the special relationship is reinforced by the US President Joe Biden and UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson as the two world leaders meet for the first time ahead of the G7 summit. So much that they want to do together with us, uh, from security, NATO, uh, to, to climate change. And uh, it's, it's, it's fantastic. It's a breath of fresh air. US President Mr. Biden vows to supercharge the global fight against the pandemic as he leads the G7 promise to provide 1 billion vaccines to developing countries in a bid to vaccinate the world by 2022. Our vaccine donations don't include pressure for favors or potential concessions. We're doing this to save lives, to end this pandemic. That's it, period. The S&P 500 hits a new record high as red-hot inflation blows past estimates and clocks a 13-year high. Chinese ride-hailing company Didi Chuxing files for a US IPO and could be one of the biggest offerings of the year. And the ECB keeps rates on hold and keeps the stimulus taps flowing while Christine Lagarde downplays an exit from the central bank's program. It's too early and uh, it will come in due course but certainly uh, for the moment it's too early and, and premature. As simple as that. Very good morning, everybody. Very good morning, Karen. Good morning, Jeff. Let's talk G7 then. President Biden has held his first face-to-face meeting with UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson ahead of this weekend's G7 summit. The meeting is the first of Biden's eight-day tour to Europe as he looks to refresh America's relationship with its global allies. Both leaders also agreed a new Atlantic Charter pledging stronger cooperation on trade, tech and travel, a move welcomed by President Biden. Today, we build on that commitment with a revitalized Atlantic Charter updated to reaffirm that promise while speaking directly to the key, the key challenges of this century. Cybersecurity, emerging technologies, global health, and climate change. We discussed our common goals for driving ambitious global action to address the climate crisis. And the Climate Leaders Summit that I hosted in April was in part about helping drive forward the momentum toward the critical COP26 that the UK will host in Glasgow later this year. Well, President Biden, they're laying out a number of issues that he's hoping to get broad agreement on from other G7 leaders. Uh, and Steve, as uh, he met with Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson's line was, uh, he's a breath of fresh air. Very little said, though, about maybe some of the disagreements around Northern Ireland. 
Yeah, morning, Jeff. Morning, Karen. Look, we know that there's a red hot disagreement over Northern Ireland between the UK and the EU as well. Macron's been chipping in with some very interesting comments there as well. Uh, and we also have it on good understanding that the top diplomat in London over the last few days has torn a strip off Britain, basically saying that their the actions over the Northern Ireland protocol uh, risk the uh, Good Friday Agreement, of course, which bought pre. Uh, brought peace uh, to Northern Ireland after decades of troubles as well. So we know behind the scenes are a problem. Boris Johnson, for his part, was saying, well, there's total harmony on the UK, EU and British aspirations over Northern Ireland to find a peaceful solution as well. But as we know, Sefcovic for the uh, European Commission uh, and Lord Frost for the UK are having very troubled talks at the moment, trying to find a way through. The British seemingly wanting to renegotiate parts uh, of that uh, deal. Uh, the Europeans, for their part, being stunningly strict on some of the conditionality as well. So perhaps on both sides, there is a bit of give and take that could be made. But it was yesterday really all about whether there would be any chemistry between Joe Biden uh, and Boris Johnson, whether the UK and US could rekindle some form of closer relationship. Uh, viewers who've watched this show for a long time know, like Boris Johnson, actually, I, I have a real problem with the term special relationship as well, which was basically brought in by Winston Churchill uh, to try and curry favour with the Americans uh, in the early part of World War II as well. But again, a lot of allusions to that period, actually, funnily enough, yesterday as well. In fact, yes, today, I'm afraid, all you've got, and you can't even see it, is HMS Northumberland, which is a frigate, which is patrolling Carbis Bay behind. But yesterday, HMS Prince of Wales, which is an absolutely gigantic ship, it's a Queen Elizabeth-class aircraft carrier, was patrolling around yesterday. And why is the Prince of Wales interesting? Because it's the namesake of the ship that took Churchill to Placentia Bay in Newfoundland back in 1941. And that's where they signed the original Atlantic Charter, which, again, I've said to viewers on Capcom just now, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that period and, you know, studying it, what have you as well. Like that period was A, before the US had even entered World War II, and B, when Britain was in absolutely dire straits with its empire in 1941. They were losing in North Africa. We were losing in the Far East. We'd, of course, had the Battle of France, which we'd evacuated and come back after Dunkirk to Britain as well. So Britain was in a really parlous state and by no means was in a position to uh, talk about post-war democracies and post-war institutions. So I think that's absolutely a fascinating period. Anyway, my point being is, yes, it was all about reinvigorating the Atlantic Charter, reinvigorating the relationship uh, on a democratic basis between champions, apparently, of democracy, Britain and the US as well, uh, and just uh, smoothing over some of those differences and, and, and issues that, that precursored uh, this meeting as well. So let's listen in to UK Prime Minister about one or two of these issues. The United States, Washington, uh, the UK, plus the European Union have one thing we absolutely all want to do, and that is to uphold the Good Friday, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement and, and make sure we keep uh, the balance of the, of the peace process going. And that's absolutely common ground. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that we can do that. So very interesting. Straight away, um, we, we can talk about vaccines later on as well, and we'll talk about it a lot as well. I think there is a lot of good news on the vaccine front. We already last week had some pretty interesting news, possibly about more cooperation on taxation. You, I and Karen have covered that an awful lot as well. But what about the future of 
these alliances going forward. Now, one of the alliances that came out of the Second World War, of course, as our viewers will know, was NATO. And there have been questions about the commitment of the United States to NATO, of course, under previous administrations. It seems that it's steadfast at the moment. But from a European point of view, there's always been questions about whether NATO is the right defence mechanism uh, for Western Europe as well. And of course, a lot of those questions have historically been raised uh, by inhabitants of the Elysee Paris, a palace. And the, the current one, of course, is Monsieur Macron as well. And he's been asking some questions about the transatlantic organisation, NATO and that. And a lot of that will be addressed, of course, because Biden is going to a NATO summit early next week as well. But let's listen in to what Monsieur Macron has to say about uh, NATO at the moment. Je pense que l'OTAN aujourd'hui est dans une situation NATO today is in a situation that requires a great deal of strategic clarification. Yes, I think that the new American administration will allow us to have a summit that has a form of appeasement on many issues. Nevertheless, we need to clarify strategically, in several respects, where the transatlantic organization is going. So I think that's a conversation for closed doors here in the next couple of days. I think it's certainly a conversation for Brussels uh, in Belgium at the start of next week at that NATO summit as well. And I expect Joe Biden to be very fulsome in his praise of NATO as well. But it'd be interesting to see whether the French come up with counter proposals uh, for the Western alliance, which many say has guaranteed peace uh, since 1945 as well. As far as the, the relationship stuff between US and UK is concerned yesterday, I think Boris Johnson wanted to talk about the charter and the special relationship or his version of it. I think he wanted to talk about vaccines. I think the press wanted to talk about whether there were relationship problems. It appears not at the moment. And I think, of course, about Northern Ireland as well, which you just can't get away from. There are seemingly intractable problems uh, still to come on Northern Ireland. Back to you both. Steve, thanks so much for that. We'll come back to you a little bit later on in the programme. Elsewhere, of course, we've got a big headline inflation print jumping 5% in the United States. That was a year-on-year increase in May rising at its fastest pace since August 2008. Meanwhile, core inflation, which excludes food and energy prices, rose just under 4%, the biggest annual jump in almost three decades. Thursday's inflation report showed broad price increases in food, energy and used car sales, uh, but was perceived by the markets as largely a series of one-off spikes. A bipartisan group of 10 U.S. senators has reached an agreement, meanwhile, on the framework of a proposed infrastructure spending plan. That deal could cost as much as $974 billion over the next five years, including nearly $580 billion in new spending. The group says it is optimistic about getting broad support for that plan. And let's take a look at what the markets did with that inflation number. If you uh, got past the headline and looked at some of the various categories where the pent-up demand spending has driven up prices, it did tell a story of transitory action, at least for enough of the market participants that we saw a slight rally, uh, particularly in technology names. Some of that relief uh, very much parked around the Nasdaq trade, and you can see a bounce of near on eight-tenths of a percent over the course of the trading week as well. We are firmer. We have gains uh, to the tune about 1.5% versus uh, the so-called recovery trade on the Dow. That has been a a very challenged trade this week. There's not been a huge amount of momentum, if anything. Uh, We've seen the Dow reversing over the course of the week, despite this green, down 8 tenths of a percent. So the market 
has been a bit more cautious on the Dow this week and it was finally the first positive day in about four in terms of the the upward move. What we had on the S&P 500, and uh, this is uh, worth noting, 27th record close. It's taken a while to get back there, but uh, certainly there's been a series of those records notched up this year. Was another one in session. If you look at the various components, real estate has been tracking around the highs, but joining in the action yesterday was healthcare stocks at a record and also communication services, which, as we know, houses a lot of those big technology names. Uh, a quick look at Treasuries, uh, the CPI number, despite uh, some of the headline heat, it was enough to pull back the yield to around a three-month low is what we've witnessed, and 1.44, the level we're watching this morning on the percent. So it has been a decline on that yield and a tightening of the two- and the ten-year spread in contrast to the steepening that we've witnessed play out this year on expectations of uh, higher interest rates or some sort of tapering to try and counter these inflationary trends. So uh, the opposite to playing out on markets as a number of traders reversed back. And worth noting the dollar trade as well, there'd been a few concerns too around uh, covering positions and uh, the yield drop also triggered a, a drop in the, the dollar index, 89.99 when we purchased down about a tenth of a percent. So it uh, has seen a little bit of uh, escalation in some of its pairs as a result, uh, for instance, the euro. Meme stocks, as we talk about some of the action state side, there's been a lot of it around these particular names. And whether there is a connection to monetary policy or not, or simply just running into a wall of resistance now, these names all reversed very, very aggressively. Uh, we've started at the week talking about how Clover Health was uh, the new meme stock, and then it fell away within about 24, 48 hours to clean energy fuels. That one had picked up the action, both of them down in lockstep 15% yesterday. GameStop down 27%, despite some high-profile hires from Amazon this week. And Wendy's, uh, a little bit more contained, as you can see, but also pulling back. Uh, the one we haven't got there is AMC, but uh, that was one of the big traders' stocks yesterday as well. A quick look at the Asian markets. This is how they're shaping up for the Friday trade. It's been a little bit patchy, as you can see, uh, green for the Australian market, for Hong Kong, uh, trading up modestly, but a little bit of a decline for Japan uh, to the flat line, and uh, China sits down by about a quarter of a percent. So we're not getting much of a clear direction, Jeff, from Asia. Karen, thank you. Uh, let's bring in David Newhouser, then, the CIO of Livermore Partners. David, good morning to you. As we see in the inflation report, demand has rebounded faster than supply. But when supply does catch up with demand, do we start then to see these inflation numbers fall? What what after that for markets? Hey, good morning. Uh, you know, look, I think that, you know, you either believe that uh, inflation is transitory or you believe that it, we're starting to see some levels of consistency with inflation, which has been uh, my view for some time now. So I think the market is seeing it sort of through uh, rose-colored glasses at this point. If you see, and the idea is that inflation uh, is transitory and therefore you're seeing yields stay relatively low and the market very sanguine. Um, I think the question will be is, as economies reopen and you start to see more normalization of the economy, uh, what happens then? So I think at this point, it's still a wait and see and, and the markets are telling you that. Uh, the markets are telling you they don't care 
about the numbers, aren't they? And, and that's what we're getting from the, uh, the Treasury yields as well. After that modest spike, we then dropped to about 1.43, I think, on the 10-year. Uh, David, don't we need to confirm that the structural drivers of inflation have actually changed here? And, and, and basically, that takes us to wages. And I think this is a chart that you gave us, which suggests that actually wages are not moving at the moment. Yeah, so when you take into account uh, wage growth and you take into account inflation, which you saw is running hot at almost a 30-year a high at this point, you're not seeing the type of wage gains that would be, uh, you know, normally you see with GDP growth of, you know, well north of 6%. So take that into account. So as you're seeing, you know, prices for automobiles, as prices for houses, as prices for food and energy go up, um, even though it looks like the economies are starting to boom, you know, the real issue is you're starting to see, you're not seeing wages grow as fast. And thus, you know, ultimately that's going to be uh, something that's going to start to pinch the consumer. And as you know, the consumers, you know, 70 plus percent of the economy. So that's how I look at it over the next few years is that if you believe that inflation is here to stay, which, you know, we do at Livermore, then I think you're going to run into some troubles. And at that point, I think the Fed has to start taking their foot off the pedal and start putting it on the brake and, and stop believing in these bubble economies that we've been uh, pushing forward for now over a year. David, we're also fixated on inflation and, and we're still having this debate. Have we got inflation? Have we not got it? Is it transitory? Are we missing a broader narrative too around the valuations and what's represented in the earnings for some of these companies now? In particular, if you look at technology, we've seen all these incredible demand stories play out around the pandemic, the pull forward potentially of sales to 2020 and early this year that some of these companies cannot live up to what's now priced into the stocks. Also on the recovery trades, there's still a lot of uncertainty around the COVID recovery, but yet we've seen the Dow escalate. Is there a broader problem around devaluation and uncertainty more so than inflation that is holding these markets back, leaving us somewhat becalmed? Well, I don't think they're holding the markets back at all. I mean, markets are hitting you know fresh highs as we speak. So I think the telling sign is the tenure. The telling sign is the Fed. And like I said, it's a seesaw effect of whether trans, uh, inflation is a bit more permanent uh, or is it transitory? And, and that's ultimately going to be the deciding factor as you look at economic data come out over the next three, six, uh, nine months. You know, if you believe the Fed is going to have to start to uh, adjust uh, the game plan comes uh, later fall and numbers stay relatively hot, you know, that's when you're going to see the sea change in terms of where investors are seeing opportunities and where investors start to sell off stocks. So it's all it's all about the 10 year and it's all about the US dollar. And I think if you focus on the US dollar, that'll tell you where the 10 year is going. And that's that to me is the main uh, point to take today. David, you're one of the smartest people I know, but I think this nuanced picture on the jobs market is just really confusing. I know that you're pointing to the AHE on that chart that you, uh, you and Jeff were referencing as well, but I want to reference the jolts data from last week. Uh, not even the, the, the hires and openings, but the quits rate is, is kind of going through the roof as well. What is going on with this jobs market where there are record um, jobs available, but people are quitting in droves? Yeah, look, I think, you know, take a look at some of the, the restaurant stocks. I think that's key. When you look at either McDonald's, Chipotle, they're seeing massive input costs that are rising and rising. And at the same time, they're having trouble 
uh, finding workers that are going to consistently work their schedules. So they're offering bonuses, right? They're trying to look at wage growth, but that's going to ultimately increase the price of their goods and services, which will, of course, increase the prices to consumers. So, yeah, no doubt, Steve, I think that, um, you know, the numbers are very, very uh, inconsistent as far as what that's telling in terms of the economy. I don't know ultimately what's that, you know, what's going to change. You know, our belief at Livermore, as you know, is we're focused on inflation. We think stagflation is possible as you see, uh, you know, the juice uh, come out of the market in terms of all the deficit spending that we've seen now and witnesses over the past 18 months. You know, what happens when that starts to get pulled back? What happens when uh, we see less QE and the bond buying program of 80 billion a month starts to dissipate? You know, that's gonna have, I think, the, the potential at least to start to re-rate uh, markets, which look extremely frothy as we've talked about now for several months. And ultimately that's where you have to focus on. So as an investor, you know, you, you look at the numbers and you can obviously uh, shy, you know, push them off to the side, but you can't do that if you start to see more consistent, more hotter numbers run uh, forward as, as you move forward here in the next few months. I want to get some market calls from you before we let you go. And I know one of your, your strongest causes around commodities. We've been talking about this a little bit this week, uh, the lack of investment in mines, huge infrastructure plans that are being rolled across the various nations. It sets the scene for uh, this tug of war between supply and demand. How do you navigate the commodity complex then uh, with your, this call on commodities? Yeah, so that, a great question, Karen. I mean, I think, you know, like I said, Livermore, our fund is focused on commodities, banks, uh, industrials for the most part. Um, we think this is going to be a new uh, super cycle for commodities. Going back to your point of we've seen less mines being built. We've seen, uh, you know, oil and gas see uh, CapEx be pulled away as banks aren't lending anymore. You're seeing ESG initiatives take front and center stage when it comes to board meetings, as I've been focusing on now for, again, the past several months. And as that occurs, you know, there's a structural shift, I think, that's occurring uh, with that. And that ultimately, like I said, so when people start to look and say, look, this is transitory inflation, it's going to be here for several months, it's going to go away. You know, I beg to differ. I think that there's been this structural shift where you have not seen capital. Capital has been starved to the complex. And ultimately, you have a dollar that's looking to, to potentially fall apart. And as you, know, you, you push all those together, or you put all those together, and I think it sets up an extremely interesting dynamic of where you want to be invested in over the next you know, three to five years, which I still think is commodities. So you know, we're playing that in terms of some of the smaller cap, you know, free cash flow or cash flow uh, businesses out there. A lot of it's in Europe and a lot of it's in international. So I think you know, Europe's going to do outperform the U.S. as we go forward. And that's where most of our capital is, actually, at Livermore and, and a lot of these European stocks tied to mining. David, good to see you. Thanks so much for helping us out this morning. David Newhouser, the CIO of Livermore Partners. Uh, moving on uh, for more analysis on how the Fed is expected to approach the latest inflation data when the FOMC meets next week, head online to cnbc.com. Still to come on the show, Chinese ride-hailing titan Didi Chuxing officially files for a Wall Street IPO, setting the stage for what could be the biggest listing of the year. And as we leave you, 
Uh, we'll take a quick break and we'll uh, give you some shots of off in the distance. I'm told this is HMS Northumberland, a Type 23 frigate originally designed to carry out anti-submarine operations in the North Atlantic, now patrolling the coast of Cornwall as it protects the G7 leaders. But from whom? That's the question that we will talk about as we consider NATO's new role going forward. We'll be right back. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Chinese ride-hailing giant Didi Chuxing has filed for a U.S. IPO, which is expected to be the biggest listing this year. According to Reuters, Didi is looking to raise around $10 billion, valuing the company at nearly $100 billion, around the same as U.S. rival Uber. Let's get out to Sam. Sam, it does feel like a lot of this story is about the rivals at this stage. You know, when Uber came to market and has had to navigate the pandemic, it's been a very difficult time trying to get, work out what is a new normal for this business as it also chases other avenues of revenue. And we've also had Grab, one of the other big rivals, come to the market. So what can we read between these stories about the performances of other, other major rivals on the markets? Good morning to you, Karen. Well, it certainly is a very interesting timing and certainly good time, you could say, for Diddy, uh, given that, uh, you know, ride hailing and uh, travel companies, the demand is certainly coming back for those are on this recovery and certainly uh, this vaccination rollout. And so there's certainly been a lot of excitement around this building uh, when it comes to Diddy, uh, because we have been watching and waiting for some time now. But uh, finally, the ticker code at Diddy uh, could soon make itself at home on Wall Street, either uh, on the New York Stock Exchange or the Nasdaq after it uh, certainly did uh, file for a listing over in the US. It's not uh, clear just yet uh, the size of this offering, but as you suggested, we have seen reports uh, saying the company could raise around $10 billion with a valuation of close to $100 billion. And with that, it could be the biggest uh, share offering by a Chinese company over in the US since Alibaba's massive IPO back in 2014. And uh, Reuters sources are suggesting this could happen as soon as next month. The lead underwriters are Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley. Uh, but certainly uh, this could be a big win uh, for those uh, shareholders, uh, Uber and also uh, SoftBank. Uh, Uber holds a 12.8% stake, uh, SoftBank around a 22%. Uh, other backers of this company are tech giants uh, like Alibaba and Tencent. And we did see shares in Tencent up uh, off the back of this news today. But certainly uh, Diddy is the dominant ride-hailing app over on the mainland. It's used for booking taxis and private cars and also carpooling. It's also extended beyond China's borders and is now operating in a number of other countries around the world. But of course, like many other country companies, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Didi did take a hit from the pandemic and these lockdowns when uh, China really has suffered. And actually, uh, revenue was down almost 10% last year, but it did kick off 2021 on a much stronger note. Uh, actually, uh, 
posting 107% growth uh, in Q1 uh, with a profit on $6.4 billion in revenue. So as I say, at the timing, perhaps a pretty good one for Diddy. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.